I had somebody come up to me today and they said, you're not really going to teach the whole chapter, are you? And I said, well, that was my intent, but no, we are not going to make it through the whole chapter. I'm going to try to get us through the book of Genesis in a timely manner, but sometimes we will not make a chapter a week. Genesis 2, though, in verse 2 to verse 20 is going to be our text this morning. And so follow along as I read. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. No shrub of the field was yet in the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, And there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is planted, uh, that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to to water the garden. And from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flowed around the whole land of Havilon and where there is gold, the gold of that land is good. The Bendelum and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And then the Lord God took man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. I think uh, Bob Dylan is in town uh, either this week or last week. And if you're old enough to remember, there was a period in Bob Dylan's life where it seems like he came to the Lord. He came out with a couple Christian CDs that really they're not too bad. So you might want to go try to find him if you uh, like Bob Dylan. But one of them was Slow Train Coming. And there was a song on that album called Man Gave Name Names to All the Animals. And uh, the chorus went like this. Man gave names to all the animals in the beginning, in the beginning. Man gave names to all the animals in the beginning a long time ago. You want me to sing it like he did? Yeah, okay. One of the verses says is that he saw an animal up on a hill chewing up so much grass until she was filled. He saw milk coming out of her but didn't know how. Uh, I think I'll call it a cow. He saw an animal like that liked to snort horns on its head and they were they weren't too short. It looked like there wasn't nothing that he couldn't pull. Ah, I think I'll call it a bull. And so on and so on. Well, that is taken out of our verse 19 this morning as we come to this chapter. 
where God creates man. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you want to kind of lay them over each other because it isn't two different accounts or two different creations, but it really is, um, some of it is repeating what we've already seen in chapter 1, and then some of it is really giving more details, especially as it comes to the creation of man. And so that's what we're going to see this morning as we kind of look into chapter 2. It's not as if it doesn't have anything to do with God. Of course it does. But it really starts now bringing in to more light the creation of man and really the relationship that man was to have with his creator. And so in one sense, it is a study of Genesis and a study of Adam and Eve. And next week we'll get actually more into them. But really there are some things, and I'll point them out to you as we go along, especially the last three things that I think this morning can really speak to your heart and have an impact on your walk. And so I'm going to give you some handles. We're going to give you, I think I'm going to give you five or six points today that just take us through the chapter, break it up, and help you to understand what's in this chapter. The first thing is, starts in verse 5, and we'll just call it man's formation. And notice again it says, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no rain to cult- no man to cultivate the ground, And so verse 7, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so as the Lord created the earth, the first man, Adam, was then also shaped and formed. And I want to show you this is exactly what happened. There's some key words here that it says he was formed. And so we want to understand what it means when it says he was formed. It tells us that the act of creation really was a careful design. It wasn't by accident. You could say it was just like um, maybe one of these builders that has the ability to build these incredible houses that we see. It was that type of idea that there was great care and great ability, um, a reflection of the divine intention. And so God was very much like a potter, if you will, working out then that perfect design when he made Adam. One author says man is no afterthought, but rather the intentional product of the infinite mind. And that's so encouraging, isn't it? Because sometimes in our lives we can feel like an afterthought. But the truth is, none of us are an afterthought to God. God breathed, it says. So formed is that it shows that there was an intent, there was some thought, carefulness put into us. But then it says God breathed and breathed into the nostrils the breath of life. And the word breathed there is literally the word blue. And so you could say God gave a good puff of air into man. And life entered into Adam and into his bones and he became alive. And it wasn't like what we think today of CPR, you know, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Um, God is spirit, so we know God doesn't have lips in that sense. But somehow he blew into man and the life man received was then different from the life of the animals. And it speaks, doesn't it, if you think about it, of intimacy. With all the animals, we don't find that it says God breathed into them the breath of life in the same way, but only with man does he breathe in this way. And so we have then that second hint, if you will, of the relationship and the intimacy that man would want to have with God. The first being in chapter 1 where it says in verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. And now when God breathes, we see that God desired an intimate personal relationship um, with um, that which he created. Living being is a life that is different from animals. They live, but man lives forever. 
either eternally in hell or eternally in heaven, but man does not cease to exist. And unlike animals, man has this immense capacity that animals don't have. We think of man's ability to learn. And I'm not saying that animals are stupid. By no means, they're not stupid. God has put into animals that which they need to survive, to exist, to, to, for their existence. They have this drives and various instincts in them for that. You know? But when you think of man, man has an incredible ability for learning. We think of speech, and you might say, well, animals speak too. Well, I'm not sure they really do. I don't know. I'm, I mean... I've got two little dogs I mentioned last week, and they yip and yap all the time. But they don't seem to carry on conversations. It's not like one's yipping and the other yips back, and they just kind of go back and forth, you know. I'm not sure what they're doing there. But regardless of that, not only can man speak, but man can learn multiple languages, can't he? And speak in many different ways. We think of the inventions of man and how many things in my own generation have come on the scene. And we think of the responsibility and how man is able to be responsible with those things. And so it it is incredible that man is then set apart from animal. And it's interesting because great potential we have to glorify man, to glorify God, I mean. But we also have great potential for disaster. And sadly, we see that as well. The King James uses the word living soul. And I thought I'd look those words up. Living is to be alive, lively, or active. And so like a plant is green as opposed to brown shows it's alive. Like water is fresh and flowing as to be stagnant and stale. Or like life in the springtime coming up all over the place. That's the idea here. That he became, he was formed and, and as God breathed that breath of life into him, he became then that living soul, that, that living being, if you will. Being is the word soul, the inner part of man, the life and blood of man. The place where all we are comes from, the appetites, the emotions, passions, the mind and the will. And so this is what it means when now the Lord says that man became a a living being. And of course, we think of the passage in Ezekiel 37. In Ezekiel 37, where Ezekiel was told to prophesy to the bones. And what happened? The bones took on life and became alive, see? And that's the breath of life that we're talking about here. And so man was formed by God himself with, with design, with thought, with intention. And being formed, God then breathed into man the breath of life, which is an intimate act speaking of the relationship that he wanted. And so on the one hand, when we see how man was created, it really should cause us to praise and to seek the Lord. I think of Second Corinthians where it says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. And when's the last time you thought of yourself as a pot? As an earthen vessel. That's what it is, a clay jar. And it's kind of interesting to think of ourselves that way because that means we're fragile, doesn't it? And, and that's a good thing because then all glory goes to God. So often you will come up to me sometimes and just tell me this or that and say, thanks for doing this, thanks for doing that. And sometimes I forget. I wish I'd always remember to say, well, it's not me, it's the Lord. But so often later in the day, I'll always say, you know, Lord, I prayed earlier today for this. And it happened. And -and so-and-so said this, so I know it happened. And I just thank you for that. And that's what it means here when we realize that that we've been created in His image and by His hand. Isaiah 64, 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father and we are the clay and you are our potter. And all of us are the work of your hands. 
And I kind of like that, you know. I kind of like the idea that I'm the work of God's hands and it shows me how much he cares about me. On the other hand, I think something John Calvin said is important to remember too, that being jars of clay, if you will, made from clay, from dirt of the ground, we should never exalt in our flesh. We should never take great pride in ourselves, but we should only exalt in God and what he does through us. And so that's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is in this passage is we see man's habitation or that place where man would live. Again, look at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that, he is, that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then it goes on up to verse 14 and describes these rivers, one river coming up out of the garden and then flowing out and breaking into four other rivers. And what we see here is that having created man, the Lord then took man and placed him in this incredible garden. And it kind of hit me in a fresh way today, you know, that that God's kind of got this whole thing going on. And, you know, there's Adam and who knows where Adam is actually at at this time. Maybe he's over in that area where the Garden of Eden was. But regardless of that, he's doing this thing with the animals, the creation with Adam, and he's got the garden created. And then he's going to take Adam and he's going to go and put him in this incredible garden. We called the Garden of Eden, but really it was a garden that was located in the area known as Eden. Best guesses today say it was in the area of Mesopotamia, which is modern Iraq. And I find that so interesting with everything that's going on today. It's believed because we can identify the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. But you have to understand this was prior to the flood. And like a People like uh, Henry Morris will say, no doubt the, uh, the topical layout of the earth changed drastically once the flood subsided. And so to say for sure we know where the Garden of Eden was, um, we really can't. But there's a good chance it was over in that area. What we do know about the Garden of Eden is this, that it was a paradise. It was the Garden of all gardens. Now, some of you, and I talk to you guys right now, I know some of you guys could care less about gardens, okay? You just think, eh, give me a football game, give me my TV, give me my recliner, and I'm a happy guy, right? But gardens are awesome. I, a long time ago, I loved to garden. I loved to be out in the garden. And I, I, I think about this and I go, man, this would be the garden of all gardens. Every tree was in the garden. And notice what it said there. It was pleasing for sight and food. And I thought, that's interesting, Lord, because we would say, well, of course, for food, because man would need to eat. But God said, oh, no, no, I don't just do it that way. You know, I make it pleasing for the eye as well. And all you have to do is drive around right now. And as these trees change their colors and everything, you realize how pleasing they can be. There was a tree of life there of knowledge of good and evil. And there was a river that watered the garden and broke into four other rivers. And if that wasn't enough, turn over to chapter 3 at verse 8. We find that in this garden, the presence of the Lord was there as well. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called out to man and said to him, where are you? And of course, we'll get into that whole scene a little bit later um, in a week or so. But really, what I want you to see is that the Lord was in this garden as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said of Adam, he speaks and walks with God as if they belong to one another. So what an incredible thing it would have been to be able to go to this garden, to be Adam and to be able to 
partake of it, to enjoy its beauty, to eat of its fruit, and to walk with your God as well. And verse 8, what does it say? That he placed the man whom he had formed, where? Right there in this paradise. And, and what is awesome to see is that as this great river would flow from the garden, watering it, dividing into four more rivers, it really spoke to Adam that the presence of the Lord was there. The presence of the Lord was flowing forth, flowing in, bringing forth life and fruit in the garden. And you guys, in the same way, we need to understand that the life-giving presence of the Lord is available to you and I today in the person of Jesus Christ. That's such an incredible thing to think about that. So we don't have gardens like that, but in a sense, we could have what that garden offered. The next thing we see, and I know I'm not going quite in in order, but I kind of put these in order of importance, is we see man's authority comes in verses 18 through 20. It says, Then the Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And so out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. And of course, that's referenced back to chapter 1. Every bird of the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. And so Adam had authority as, as man over what God had created. Animal life was a part of that. Plant life was a part of that. We also see it in verse 29 of chapter 1 when it said, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is in on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food as it was. And so God placed man in authority over these things. And, you know, some might think, and I've heard this before, a criticism of Christians, is that because we are over the earth, that means we can abuse it. But, of course, I don't think, I don't know where they get that from. I think when one truly understands it's the Lord's, you actually have a greater appreciation for it and you don't abuse it. You know, I was thinking this week about this is that when I came to the Lord back in 1972, I was really just headed down not a good way with drugs and everything else. And so I, looking back, I probably came to the Lord for two reasons. I didn't want to go to hell. And second of all, I was hoping, because others told me, that he could help my life out. Okay? Although at that time, when you don't know that, you're not convinced, right? But you take a shot. Well, it's funny. Even in those early days, one of the first things I did was stop littering. And I don't know why I did that. But, you know, in those days, we could care less. You know, we were one of those guys that when you see on a Sunday morning, you see the 12-pack of beer bottles broken in the street. That would have been me, okay? Or you go by Dick's and you're done eating. Everything goes out the window, you know? You wonder who would do that, don't you, today? Well, don't look at me like that. Some of you did it as well, okay? But it was just one of the first things I stopped doing when I came to the Lord is I stopped littering. And, and again, my point is that, you know, that even though we have been given this authority, we're not to, you know, we don't want to abuse the earth, you know. I think of, when we think of a man's authority, it always has to be seen in light of God, doesn't it? We are to never look at our authority without, through the filter of God and His will and under His control. If, if we do, if He's not included, then it's an abuse of authority. Every one of us has some level of authority in our life. There's somebody we're over, somebody that looks to us. It doesn't matter who we are. And, and for the one who knows Christ, then our authority should always be a reflection or should reflect Christ in that. 
So we could be a person of great power, of great wealth, of great authority over other people. And yet if we are a believer, we're to reflect Christ. And having authority is really another opportunity to be Christ-like. And so maybe that's something that can speak to us in this area. The next thing we see in these next three are the ones that I really want you to just lock in and chew on throughout the week as we see man's prohibition. It comes in verse 16. For the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From the tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will die. And so the one thing man was not to do was eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this is the first commandment, you guys, for man found in the Bible right here. Don't eat this tree. Don't eat of the fruit of this tree. If Adam did, and when we get to chapter 3, you'll see he did, along with Eve, they would then have the knowledge, it says, of both what? Good and evil. They already had, or at least to a degree, the knowledge of good. Okay, It was all around them. It was in God who was speaking to them and fellowshipping with them in the garden. They could see it in what was created. They could see it in the animals. All was good. Everything they saw was good. Their relationship pointed to what was good. But the knowledge of evil would come when they did that which was forbidden. Henry Morris says, Evil can be defined simply as a rejection of God's will. Partaking of the forbidden fruit would therefore surely give Adam knowledge of good and evil as well as the difference between them in the most intensely real way. And so as he ate of that fruit, we like to think it's an apple, and the crunch went out. All of a sudden, the eyes were open. They understood now another side, evil, bad, wrong. And notice, you'll see why I want you to take this with you this week. It's something you can grasp and hang on to. Is Notice what this disobeying of the first commandment was. It was a rejection of God's word. You say, well, Scott, I don't see the Bible here. Well, Of course, the Bible wasn't put together by this time. But what you do see is that God had spoken. Adam had it one-on-one, if you will. He had heard the words of God, don't eat of this tree, but he did. And in so doing, he was rejecting God's word and it brought him death. Kent Hughes says, Adam and Eve desired wisdom, but they sought it outside the word and the will of God. And here we get the very heart of original sin. It was to step side, sidestep. God and his word and will in order to become wise. And you guys, do you understand that this is what our world puts forth all the time? Our cable TV channels are filled with it. Our radio waves are filled with it. Our magazine racks and books are filled with it. It is a wisdom that does not include God. And that is not wisdom at all. Notice, if you will, and you know the story, I think, that when Adam and Eve disobeyed and ate of the tree they weren't to eat of, it cost them everything. It cost them the garden, this beautiful paradise that God had placed them in. They would be driven from it now and they could no longer enjoy it. It cost them the food of that garden. It cost them their relationship with the Lord and and, and itself. And now it, it meant they would die, as it said. You know, Jesus is called the second Adam in Romans 5. The first Adam here brought sin and death. But Jesus, the second Adam, brought life and grace and forgiveness into the world. And when Jesus encountered during his temptation period before he started his ministry, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan came to him and said, if you're the son of God, turn those stones into bread. In other words, satisfy your hunger. And I think, oh, Lord, what would I do in that case? 
If I hadn't eaten for 40 days, 40 nights, would I use if I had the power to turn stones into bread? But you know what Jesus said? He said to Satan, it is written in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And maybe sometimes we spiritualize that passage and we spiritualize Christ so much to make it seem like it's something that really isn't the same. uh, It doesn't relate to us. But I think it really does. And I think what Christ is saying here is something very important. He's laying down a principle, not just for his own life and what he was going through at the time, but I think he was teaching a message to his followers. That do you understand in this world that you do not live just on bread? But real life comes from where? The Word of God. And so how is man to live? By every word that God has spoken. We're to know the Word. We're to love the Word. We're to read the Word, to rely upon the Word and seek the Word. And that is what Jesus says. And I'm so thankful for the Bible. I'll give you a bit of information about me that I don't know if I'm proud of it or not, but I'll just tell you it and life goes on. When I graduated from high school, I graduated with a 1.5 grade point average. I think I had straight D's. I don't even know if they give D's anymore. And let me tell you guys, When I went to Bible school, I did something. Only my wife knew I was going to do this. First of all, I said, I know I could do better. And I graduated Bible school with above a three-point average. And no one else knew, just her and I knew what I was doing. But you know something God has done by giving me a love for His Word and studying His Word? It's amazing how He changes you. I think of my (laughs) how much I've grown in so many other areas because I'm into His Word, you know? Now I'm up to a C plus average, you know, in my ability. So, you know, but my point is that, that we understand how important this word is. And so the question is, and I'm going to really try to push this home today to you, is do you, do you understand how important the word of God is? You know, where do we fall? Where do we, where does it fall into or where do we fall in to this whole era of the word of God and what we're talking about this morning? You know, if we were tested like Adam, would we do the same thing or would we not do what he did? And so man was prohibited from eating the tree of good and evil. And, you know, it dawned on me that so often we think that when we're told we can't do something, that we automatically think that, well, it's there. Why can't I? You know, and we don't realize that sometimes it's because it's a bad thing. And by not taking of the bad thing, it actually then is a good thing we're being told. Does that make sense? See what I mean? And yet we're such idiots at times. And we think, well, no, I've got to see for myself. I've talked to several of you at times of wondering why I did it. Some of our kids do it. When they get in the high school years and in the early college years, why do our kids have to sow their wild oats, as they say? Why do they have to go experiment with drugs or experiment with drinking or experiments with sex when they know and they've heard that that's not the way you're to live. And yet it seems like we we do that. And yet here we're told we shouldn't do that. And we need to understand sometimes when when God gives a command, when God's words are put forth, you know what the answer should be? Do exactly what it says. Do what he's trying to tell us to do. Notice for Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed, When God said, don't eat of this, it's actually a good thing for you what happened. Death came. They died. 
And watch, guys, they died to everything. They lost again the garden, their food, their relationship with God, life itself. And is sin worth it? You know, it has taken me quite a few years in walking with the Lord, and I, I fear I'm still not there at times, by, but except by the grace of God, to understand how dangerous sin is. And we need to understand that when God says don't do something, don't do something. Because the cost of doing it could be so great. How often we think, well, I'm just going to do this and we, we do something we shouldn't do and, and there's a moment of pleasure in it, a moment of satisfaction in it. But I assure you, if you are a believer, it is a short-lived satisfaction and no sooner have you tasted and indulged and partake of whatever it was than the convicting power of the Holy Spirit comes into your life and it tastes so bitter and there's such regret. And you and I need to understand that the Word of God is to be taken very seriously. We are to live by it. We are to obey it. Recently, with our fellowship has gone through, I think for many of us, we've seen the graphic effect of what sin can do. The damage it can do. The pain it can do. I had a board meeting a week ago and I asked my guys, I said, is your walk with the Lord a little bit more serious now? Are you a little bit more closer to God? Do you fear Him a little bit more now? And every one of us said, yes. Every one of us. Why? Because we saw the Word of God disobeyed. And we saw the damage that it does when it's disobeyed. And what we want to do this morning is not think of that abstract example, but apply it to ourselves. Pastor Scott has to be mindful that if I partake of that tree that the Lord says don't partake of, there'll be a horrible price to pay. And you have to understand that as well, see. And that's what we need to see here, that there is a prohibition, you know. What do we see? You know, we, see, we need to understand that commands and rules and orders and prohibitions are not necessarily bad. You know, growing up in the late 60s and early 70s, and I don't think it's ever really changed, but that was a time of rebellion. And many of us, as they call us baby boomers, have to understand rebellion has nothing to do with the thing of God. And we need to repent of that rebellious spirit that sometimes we have. But I'm afraid it's not just my generation. I think people as a whole without God, are, we are rebellious people. And we need to understand that commands are not necessarily bad. You know, sometimes I would just rebel because it was authority telling me something to do and I was going to show them I am not going to obey you. But that's the wrong attitude. Look what Psalm 119 says. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes and look at, from looking at vanity and, and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Turn away my reproach which I did for, watch, for your ordinances are good. That is so awesome. See? And so this morning what we need to understand is God help me to understand that this is a precious word. And oh yes, it says don't do this, don't do that. But it's a good thing. And Psalm 1975 says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous. Well, the next thing we see is man's service. 
Look at verse 15. It said, Then the Lord God took man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. That's all he had to do. That was his service, if you will. Take care of the garden, Adam. Okay? And, and you gardeners are going to love this because watch this. No weeds in this garden. Seattleites, no slugs. Okay? It had perfect balance in every way and everything. Do you understand that? It did. You know, weeds didn't come. You could look at it later in chapter 3, verse 17, where God then curses the ground and Adam will toil with it and weeds will come forth and thistles will come forth because of the sin they committed. But at this point, it's not there. And oh, that gardening was like that. You know? I thought about this. Gardening is mostly about weeds, isn't it? It's constantly taking weeds out of the garden is what gardening is all about. Now, there's more. But that's what we see here. And it may seem insignificant, but this is exactly what all believers are to be. We are to be servants who serve. And that's what we see here when Adam was to care for the garden. We're to be servants who serve. You know, and so this garden grew, being watered by the most incredible watering system. And all had Adam had to do was cut things back, it seems like, one author said. You know, things would have grown and just, it would have been incredible. So his job was just pruning. He didn't have to deal with whistles or black whistles or thistles. They're a lot like whistles, but... <laughs> or blackberries or any of those type of things, see? He just had to take care of it. And yet, you know, we know that he wanted more. But you and I are to be servants. Maybe if Adam was busy doing that which he was supposed to do, he wouldn't have time to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and of evil. There's an old saying that says, idle hands and minds are the devil's workplace. And it's kind of a corny saying, but it's pretty good because what it says is, if as believers we're not busy with the things of God, we're leaving ourselves open for temptations of the devil. And you guys, we're to be servants. I want to remind you of that this morning. How many of our problems would not exist if we were busy with the things the Lord tells us to be busy with? I tend to be a pretty active guy, but every so often I get a little bored and I must have confessed to you that Probably that's when I cause my wife the most grief is when I'm at home and I'm bored. I tend to pick on her a little bit more, maybe be critical a little bit more. And she just needs to turn to me and says, would you go take care of your garden? <laughs> you know, because I'm not taking care of it at that time. I'm not being the servant I should be. Jesus said in Matthew 23:11, but the greatest among you shall be your servant of all. Mark 9, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Leave those up there for a minute. Look at those verses, you guys. See, it's not saying, oh, if you want to be the greatest person in the world, never you'll think you're the greatest person, be a servant of all. No, it's saying, if you want to be the greatest person in God's eyes, from his perspective, what he thinks about you, then be a servant, see. And remind yourself this morning what you know about servanthood. We think of in Rome, how servants were treated the things they had to do, the lack of rights they had. We think of slavery in our own country. And it helps us understand the attitude a servant was to have, see? And that's what you and I are called to be. And so for Adam, his service was to tend this incredible garden that God had placed him in. It was his place of servanthood. And like with obeying God's word, 
how are we doing in this area? See, Again, this is another thing I want you to take with you today. I want you to be challenged by this. I want you to even be convicted by it if that needs to be. But are you the servant? Am I the servant? Am I serving like I'm supposed to be? And if you're too young, if you're young and think, well, that's for older people, you're wrong. And if you're old and think my time is done, I don't have to serve anymore, you're wrong. And if you're in between and are thinking whatever you're thinking, you're wrong. (laughs) But we're to be servants, see? We really are. And that is the place of greatest blessing, isn't it? I'll tell you, when my marriage is humming the best is when I am serving my wife the best. When I'm not thinking about myself, but I just serve her and I help her around the house, I do the things that she wants to do, the blessings just come flying back at me. And there's a message there for you and I that we're to be servants. See, and that's what we are to be. Are we, so we are to obey God's word, but we're to be as servants. And are we serving in the home? See, Husbands, do you think the home is the place where you're to be served? You're not going to like next week's message. You might want to stay away, okay? Because we're going to look at the whole Arab home and relationship and man and woman. But that's not what it's about, is it? Husbands are to be servants in the home of their wives and children. Wives are to serve their husbands, their children. Children are to be served. Children are to serve. There's to be a serving atmosphere in the home. And again, maybe some of us need to be reminded of that this morning. How are we doing when it comes to serving at work? Our employer, our boss, even if we don't like our employer, our boss, even if our employer or boss is not a good employer or boss. Let me remind you, slaves had no rights in those days. Slaves were treated like a piece of property during the Roman times. And if the Roman owner of that slave wanted to, he could put that slave to death and suffer no consequences. And yet that didn't mean the servant wasn't supposed to be the servant he was. And it's a message to you and I. It doesn't matter who we serve what they're like, whether they're good or bad, whether they're worthy of our service or not. They're not. You're not. We're not worthy, see? How about fellow employees, customers, suppliers, visitors? What are we like at work, see? Is there that servant heart? Maybe some of us here today are in management. Maybe we're an employer, a manager. Maybe we oversee people. Well, what type of servant are we, see? We are to serve in public. Oh, it's getting a mess out there in the public. People don't talk to each other anymore. The Northwest is rude. I'll tell you, it's ruder than Chicago. (laughs) I was in Chicago a few weeks ago, and one of the things the guys and I noticed is that they're not quite as hyped out back there as we are here. The driving here is insane and aggressive. The other day I was driving, and my wife said to me, you are an aggressive driver. I said, no, I'm not. (laughs) what do you say that for (laughs) I tried to defend myself but she had me I'm an aggressive driver now I don't run people off the road it's kind of what I say when I'm driving and before you say shame on you Pastor Scott come on some of you are there as well see and God just is convicting me saying man what's your gig you're not acting much like a servant when you drive, you know. Then there was something else he convicted me on just last night, and I'm not going to share it with you. <laughs> it had something to do with my wife. 
And basically, God said, F minus. You stink in this area right now. And I said, you're right, Lord. See, you got to understand my messages, they get preached to me about three hours before they get preached to you. So, first God kind of nails me with my own messages, and then I get to nail you with them, okay? <laughs> but seriously... Remind ourselves this morning of Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. Leave that there for a minute. Look at the last line. You say, oh, Scott, I want to be the right type of servant. The key is right there, death to self. And when you and I die to self, that is when we'll be the right type of servant. Well, then last thing, we're going to go back to the beginning of chapter two. We see man's worship. And these three things are what I want you to remember. Man's prohibition, the word of God is important. Man's service, we're to be servants, and now man's worship. In the time the command would come, where God would say in Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, don't work on the Sabbath, don't let your kids work on the Sabbath, you know the commandment, okay? But here is the beginning of that command. And so having created in six days, creation was done, and on the seventh, God rested. And why and how God rested, you need to understand, I was really refreshed by this, is really different than why and how you and I rest, okay? Being God, he didn't need to rest because he was fatigued, okay? Six days of creation didn't cause him to be wiped out, and he needed a breather, okay? One author said, watch this. Did I got this up here? Onipotence? Yeah, this is great. Onipotence needs no rest because regardless of the amount of power that goes forth from him, his power is not depleted one whit. His omnipotent creating power is infinite. And that is the God that we serve, see? The word rest then doesn't mean that he rested because he was tired, but the word literally means to cease from. And so what did God do on the seventh day? He ceased from creating. Why? Because he was worn out? No, because creation was done. And, and by the way, and I, I just there's so many things I want to get into and I can't. He actually took incredible pleasure in his creation, as you could imagine. We talked about the garden and think of when you were able to do something, you stand back and go, whoa, can you imagine what God did after he created this, he just stand back and went, nice, nice. Now, I don't know if he did that or not, so I'm sure he'll let me know. Hey, that Sunday when you said that, I didn't do that. <laughs> but anyway, sorry, it just does this thing. It's my mind. It just doesn't stop at times. But So anyway, um, he ceased from creating. In fact, the interesting thing is we need to understand about the Lord that the Lord never really has stopped working. And so this idea that the Sabbath is a day of, you know, just where it means that God didn't work is the wrong idea. We think of when Jesus one time was confronted by the Pharisees for healing a man on the Sabbath because to heal on the Sabbath was to do work and work was forbidden on the Sabbath by Jewish law. Well, Jesus in John 5:17 he says, He answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. And I think those guys went away and didn't have a clue what he was talking about. But he, what he was saying is, you guys are missing the boat here. You think what the Sabbath was about was not working. 
but there's a great work that still takes place. And God, he had stopped from creating, but he really had never stopped working. If he did, life as we know it would not exist. Colossians 1, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. And if I read that passage right, what it says that if it wasn't being held together by God right now, we wouldn't be here. See, that we look at this world. First service, I was picking on Terry James. He comes to first service and he was coming up to me this week and he was telling me about how they are. I don't know his mind. Just why do you talk to me about these things? It's like I just so he's talking about transporting people. And he says like uh, Star Trek. And he says they're actually getting they're getting some ground on that. I go, really? Because I actually I think that'd be kind of cool. But what he said, well, not people. They're actually able to move atoms and some light right now. And he's going on about this. And I'm just sitting there going, you know, Terry, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. You know, I'm still trying to figure out the record. Yeah, you heard me right. The record. Okay. I still haven't figured out how sound went from the record to the needle to the speaker. And so don't ask me to make the jump to CDs or how it goes to that thing not even touching the CD. And wireless, well, we're never going to figure that one out in my brain. <laughs> but, but there's a point here somewhere. Um, and I know I'm not going to remember it now. No, it's not going to come back. <laughs> anyway, so we see that God rested on the seventh day. And I think it has something to say to you and I in the area of our worship of God. And that's what I want us to see here. We understand it was a day that was different than all the other days here, you guys. Just think for a minute with me. First of all, all the other days we read, what does it say in Genesis 1? And God said. And so there was kind of this formula. And God said, let there be light. There was. God said, let there be. And there was. See. But here, there's no creating power was needed for the seventh. And, and so it sets the seventh day apart. The second thing is the seventh day didn't close like the rest. All the other ones, when he said, let there be light. And what does it say there? And there was evening and there was morning on the first day, the fifth day, the sixth day, right? But you don't read that here. And third, it was the only day to be blessed and sanctified. And so what I want you to understand here is something very important is that the seventh day was different. It's almost as if God lifted it up above the other days and said, it is a different day. It's different in that he said it would be blessed. Notice there, verse 2, but the seventh day God pleaded his work, which he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. And then, verse 3, then he blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Highlight those words if you want to. Blessed and sanctified. Hear what they mean. It's really interesting. The, it, it, to be blessed different, to be blessed in verse 3, is blessed seems to carry with it the idea to be spiritually fruitful. Now you say, well, I don't see that there, Scott. Let me show you. Two other times in Genesis chapter 1, God blessed, and it meant be fruitful. In Genesis 1.22, God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 1.28, with man, God blessed them, and God said to them, who of Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so notice both times he said, be fruitful and multiply. And so now regarding the Sabbath, the meaning is basically the same, but it's in a spiritual realm. So God blessed the Sabbath that it would be spiritually fruitful for mankind. That's really interesting to think about that. You say, well, Scott, is it really different than the other days? You know, and I'm going to explain to you that, you know, we want to balance it with what Hebrews says. But I think there's it's to get our attention this morning here. So regarding the Sabbath, it means that same thing. 
that in the spiritual realm and God bless the Sabbath that it be fruitful. Westerman says God's blessing bestowed on this special holy solemn day a power which makes it fruitful for human existence. The blessing gives the day which is a day of rest the power to stimulate, animate, enrich and give life to fullness. And Kent Hughes says the seventh day is one of the perpetual spring, spiritual spring, a day of multiplication and fruitfulness. And so it was to be different in that it was blessed. But he said also, and I want you to see both, it was blessed and that's what we see that means, that it's to be a fruitful day, but it was sanctified. Verse 3, sanctify means holy. Some of your Bibles is going to use that word. And holy and sanctify means to be set apart. And so again, by the way, this is the first time we see something to be set apart in Scripture right here. And so by calling it holy, the Lord elevated it above other days and he set it apart for himself. And so it is to be different in these two ways because it's a blessed day. It's a day that will bring forth, it seems, spiritual fruit in our lives. And it's a day that is to set apart for the Lord and that He sanctified it. He set it apart. We know for the Jews it'd be that day of rest when no work was to be done. The passage in Exodus, I won't read it, but that's a command. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy, you know, because it's the Lord's day. Bless it. Make it holy. And in creation, you see a rhythm, you guys, Six days of work followed by a day of rest. And, um, and man was to enter into that same kind of rhythm. See, the reason we're out of rhythm today is because we're not in rhythm with God. If you come to my house on Sunday afternoon, about 3 o'clock, you will find me in bed. Almost every Sunday. I'm sorry. Okay? And I'm not saying I'm more spiritual than you. Okay? But what I'm saying is my routine on Sunday is I go home and my wife will make me some lunch. I'll read the paper. I'll watch some football. And then I will take usually a two to three hour nap almost every single Sunday. And it is weird. I almost think it is a spiritual thing. And again, I'm not saying, you know, you're missing out if you don't have this. But it just happens to me. I just shut down. And I don't know why. Maybe it's just all the energy I put in. I tell people that Sunday afternoon is a pastor's Friday. You understand? That's, that's my Friday now when day, the work week's over. So from Sunday afternoon through Monday, that's where I finally just, whew, you know, forget about things until Tuesday, you know. But, but that's what we see here. And, and there was this rhythm. And I, I wonder if, it, what is it saying to you and I? You know, I came across this interesting thing that it was to be more than a day of rest, but it was to be a day of joy in the Jewish mind. A Jewish theologian named Abraham Heschel he said, it is a day in which we are called upon to show what is eternal in time, to turn from the results of creation to the mystery of creation, from the word of the world of creation to the creation of uh, to the creation of the world. And so that was the Jewish mindset. The Jewish the Jews were to keep the Sabbath because it was to change. They weren't to focus on the creation anymore, but the Creator and the mystery of the Creator. And so they were to keep it holy, and it was to be sanctified. That it was saying there was more to life than work. I hope you understand that. You know, some of you guys, I know some of you guys that are in construction. I remember I've got a friend that does elevators and it, it, it never fails when they're almost finishing one of these high rises downtown Seattle that right before it's done, they want it done faster and they tell the elevator guy to get your work done. And so a lot of times they'll have to work two or three weeks in a row with no days off. Incredible pay, by the way. And yet... My friend will tell me every time that when he first started, the money was staggering. 
but now he could care less because of what it does to him when he doesn't get that day off. See? And we need to understand that. You know, life is more than work. That there's a God and God is to be worshipped. It was to be a day when God could be considered, His Word could be heard and studied to think about eternal things and to pray. The other day I called my son. He's a teacher now and he's married now and his wife has taken him away from me and I never hardly see him anymore. You feeling sorry for me? Okay. They don't and she don't either. You know. But uh, I called him the other day and we still haven't quite hooked up yet but I, I just realized you know, I miss him. I don't see him like I used to see him. And so... You know, I just want to make sure we could hook up, maybe try once a week. And we tried a morning, and I, didn't, I haven't talked to him about it, but it didn't seem like it was a good idea for him. Uh, he kind of, I could tell he kind of gets up in the morning and he kind of goes into school probably half asleep. And so to, to get up a little earlier and meet Dad is like, oh, Dad, I'm not going to have much thinking power at this time. So I thought, well, maybe he has a lunch break. I can go over to school and we could sit and have lunch together or something, you know, and and uh, just just hook up together. And what I'm getting at is because one of the things my son and I do, and I love to do it, is we love to talk about the Lord and think about the Lord and talk about just odd things about the Lord. And we've always had a great relationship. He's not afraid to say, you know, Dad, you ever thought about this or that? Or and he has good 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 insights at times. And that's what the Sabbath is supposed to be about. And a day to pray, you see. I think of Isaiah 58 where it says this, If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure, and speaking your own words, then you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make your, and I will, I will make your ride, on the, ride on the heights of the earth. And I'll feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And you say, well, what does that mean, Scott? That means if you make sure that days of rest and honoring the Lord are important in your life, he's going to bless you, is what it means. You know, something you may have already noted is, unlike the other six days, which ended with the words, there was evening, there was morning, there was no attachment to the seventh day. There was no ending like that. And it shows us that it's something, it has something to say to you and I even to this day. For the Jew, the Old Testament Jew, the message is clear. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, don't work on that day. And you may think, well, it isn't as clear in the New Testament, Scott. We're not under the law. But you know what? You're wrong. Hebrews 4.9 says, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And what is the Sabbath rest? It is trusting in Christ. To know all about Christ is not entering into the Sabbath rest. There are a lot of people, there even are a lot of believers that have tremendous information about Jesus. Tremendous information about the Bible. But they are not able to have relationship and enter into a personal rest with Him. You know? And we need to understand that. Even acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Savior of the world, does not mean that you have entered into that rest and the worship of the Lord that you're supposed to enter into. See, That's what it means there. Trust in Jesus is what gives rest to the soul, what means to enter into His rest. True faith is belief plus trust. And that is what we are entered into. You know, all of us believers at times fall short in this area where there are things going on in our lives and we think we are trusting God, but we really aren't trusting God. 
we are still hanging on to them. And that is a failure to enter into its rest. And so in one sense, we do not have to keep a Sabbath. You know, by the way, Sunday isn't the Sabbath anyway. Saturday is, you know, so we're already blowing it. Um, but understand that what I'm saying, and, and there is a sense that we, we are not to be legalistic in, in about a certain day. I'm almost done, okay? <laughs> I think those were the chariots coming or something, so sounded like horses to me. <laughs> but, but I think that there's a, a two things I just want you to leave with on this, okay? Is one, I think that is obviously make sure you enter into that rest. And what that rest means that they're talking about, there's, you know, there remains a Sabbath is, in other words, we are to walk in that place with Christ where we are at rest, where we're not worried about the things of this world. But when we look at Genesis and we see that, wow, the seventh day was different. It was kind of put above all the other days. Let me just encourage you that let it speak to your heart about your worship of God. It is so important, you guys. And it doesn't mean we just worship Him on our Sunday. By the way, this is the first day of the week, the best way to start the week. But it means we worship Him every day, doesn't it? It means we're mindful of that. We have a relationship with Him. You've often heard me say that if you're around me too much, you might think I'm crazy because every so often you'll, I'll be talking to myself. But I'm really not talking to myself. I'm really talking to the Lord. And I'm alone a lot in places and I'll just start talking out loud at times because I love Him and I just want to talk to Him. And you guys, that's what we're to be about. And so those three things I want you to leave with this morning. God has given us prohibitions in His Word. Be wise. Don't go against those and honor His Word. God has called you and I to be servants. And in God's eyes, we'll be the greatest when we're those servants. And God has called us to be worshipers of Him in that this message that we see here and how the seventh day was different. So next week, we will get into the whole creation of Eve and Adam and Eve and their relationship. And I'm going to take advantage of it to talk to you about marriage about relationships between men and women, some important stuff, even if you're not in that category. But, man, it's a place we've got to hit on in this day and age. And so read ahead. We'll end up somewhere in Chapter 3. I don't know where, but if you read all of Chapter 3 and the rest of 2, you'll be in good shape. Let's stand. Don't forget if you uh, two things. The Dead Sea Scroll tickets will be back in this area. And if you don't have to hurry... Remember, 50-cent cinnamon rolls today. And so get your hors d'oeuvre before lunch, and uh, you'll be in good shape. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and our time this morning. Thank you for your word, Lord. How we can take this passage and this account, Lord, and it just seems to be so straightforward. And yet, Lord, it really does speak to our hearts about so many things. And so, Lord, you've spoken to us. I pray we would listen to those things. We'd chew on them re-meditate on them, Lord. And we would do that which you've spoken to our hearts of this morning. So thank you for our time, Lord, today. In Jesus' name, amen.